Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun informal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. Back in the 80s, when I first started traveling to New York on business, obviously, many decades before Lyft and Uber, you would take a taxi. And you were always skeptical of whether the taxi driver would take you for a ride around town and try to rack up the fees. So I would usually come from LaGuardia to Fashion Avenue, which was right in Times Square. And sometimes it would cost $50 and sometimes it would cost 75 and even more from the same, the same time same location. But I didn't know enough about the city. I didn't know if they were taking me on some circuitous route. Therefore, I didn't care, although I was skeptical sometimes that I was being swindled. And I was thinking about this because I've made two trips this in the past week from the Portland airport to home. One time I couldn't see the Lyft driver's little GPS and he started going in a different direction. But I know Portland so well that I knew that it was at least one of the routes and I knew that it was going to you know, cost me $31.25, whether he went this way or that way. Last night, I'm coming home from the airport. And again, my driver, this time I could see his GPS. English was a second language, so his English wasn't very good. He's a really nice guy. And he started driving the route. And then I saw that he took a different route and it wasn't on the GPS. And that decision was made for me, but clearly not made by him, or excuse me, made by the GPS, but he decided not to, or inadvertently or purposely, go the way of the GPS. And I started thinking about decisions and how I need to be in control of the decisions, or I'm not in control of the decisions, and how often are we in control of the decisions. Stephen knows Portland like the back of his hand, having grown up here, and yet he'll defer to the GPS many, many times, even when it doesn't indicate that there's maybe a traffic accident. It'll just he'll just follow the way that the GPS tells him to go. And I'm like, why do you decide to go that way? Because an algorithm tells you when you know this city, you know the back roads better than any algorithm could ever teach you. But what makes you decide to allow the algorithm or allow the taxi driver or allow whatever to make those decisions for you. And this leads me to the curiosity bite. Do we have the right to know how and why things are decided for us? Well, do we want to know or do we have the right to know? That's I would have to clarify that. Sure, I would like to know the how and why decisions are being made for us. But do I have the right to know? Do I have the legal or social or ethical freedom or entitlement? I don't think so, but I would love to know why things are being decided for me and how things are decided for me. Because I know that I'm not, I know now, especially now that we're more on the social medias and things, that decisions are made without my knowledge or control. 
Well, the to tackle the transparency issue in the European Union, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation legislation, introduced mm-hmm. a right, and actually a right to know if an automated process was used to make a decision. I don't think they could necessarily put something in where it's the right to know if another human made the decision for us, because I actually wonder if we really want to know how and why things are decided for us. So, for example, you say... Of course, I would want to know how and why things are decided for us. But I'm not sure because what if in learning how things were decided for us, at no point did you have your hand on the steering wheel? It's scary to think about because I feel like, wow, I have no reason. (laughs) I'm just a little puppet. So that's kind of scary to think about. But it makes me curious where this all came from. I've come to realize that we really don't have any control in our lives. But what's my point then? (laughs) I mean, geez. All right. Well, if you could know either how or why, but you had to choose, you could either know how things were decided for you or why things were decided for you. Which one would you pick? I want both. You're very greedy. (laughs) I want both. Okay, but you have to choose. (sighs) Well, well, what would you choose? I I don't know. I would choose why. Why? Because I don't believe in free will. Right. And by that, I mean that it's not like I don't decide whether to go to the store of Red Meyer or New Seasons or whatever. I'm talking about if all the inputs, the genetic inputs, the environmental inputs, all of the inputs were the same, I would make the exact same decision every time. As a matter of fact, how many decisions do you think we make in a day? Oh, God. Zero. <laughs> Am I right? Did I get it? A- <laughs> I saw that you were trying to trick me. Uh Well, 35,000 decisions we make in a day, whether we make them or they're made for us in some neurochemical Mm -hmm. way, but 35,000 decisions. And that's, did I decide to go right or left, scratch my nose? I mean, I'm talking- But none of those, we make that decision. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there are, I believe that the neurochemicals and all the inputs that are genes. I mean, for example, let's say I decide that I'm going to be seven feet tall and I am going to have the grit- and the desire and everything that it takes to make it as I'm gonna, a seven foot tall person. I'm going to put you on a stretch machine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will never be seven feet tall. Let's decide. Let's say that I'm going to decide that I'm going to be a quantum physicist. And <laughs> Good I, luck. Why am I? Why are you laughing? <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to be a quantum physicist. Now I'm going and they people say you can do anything. You can be anything. Why? Bull pucky. Why is it? different to say that I can't be a quantum physicist than it is to say that I can't be seven feet tall. Because you're not smart enough. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the deal. I'm not. (laughs) But if you have an eight-year-old kid, let's say you're 5'5 and your husband is 5'10 and your son says, mom, when I grow up, I want to be a quantum physicist. And You're you and your husband's him. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible. Why is that more possible than if he says, Mom, I want to be seven feet tall? Well, I mean, obviously, that would depend on the kid. I'm talking about your kid. Oh, my kids. (laughs) I would laugh at them just like I just laughed at you. (laughs) No way, Jose. But you wouldn't laugh if they were 12. No, well, 
let's go a little younger because <laughs> we're mean. How young can we get to where we go, you're an idiot, don't even think about it. But what about if you have enough grit to choose and make the decision to be a quantum physicist? And how do we look at that differently than if we have the grit to choose to be seven feet tall? Well, I don't think, I think we are predisposed to be a certain height. No, because there are plenty of people who have genetic predisposition to being tall, but right. but they are malnourished or they have a disease or mm. whatever. So why do we think that we can decide to do things that have kind of on the mental fringes of normal, but we can't on the physical fringes of normal? Well, I could help you be shorter. I just can't help you be taller. So there's that. How could you help me be shorter? I just... Uh, Not feed you? Give you a hysterectomy. <laughs> I shrugged two inches since my hysterectomy, so I know I can make you be shorter. That's because you have osteoporosis. Oh, well, you're kind of a wannabe osteoporosis. Yeah. Well, let's talk about choice architecture. Okay. Because when you think about the decisions that we make, it's all about choices. And we like to see that we are in the driver's seat. And yet there are people now that are becoming choice architects. Like you can get a degree in choice architect mm. and you're designing for Facebook, you're designing for Nabisco, you're designing for public policy, you're, you're working on public policy. Is this just another word for a manipulator? Well, okay, to the degree that manipulation is manually or in some way moving a dial, mm -hmm. it's kind of like there are certain words that have this patina on them but they really at their core mean something and that could be manipulation, which we kind of think of as negative. But, you know, if you manipulate a dial or right. you manipulate a, a, a recipe, it's you're not thinking about that as some maniacal thing. Right. Um, something is flame retardant. We don't think of that as a negative. But when we hear that applied to people, that's really a negative thing. So let's put that aside for a minute, because the term was coined by Thaler and, Sun and Sunstein. And they these are decision architects. Mm -hmm. And it refers to the practice of influencing choice by organizing the context in which people make decisions. A frequently mentioned example is how food is displayed in cafeterias. We're offering healthy food at the beginning of the line or at eye level, can contribute to healthier choices. Hmm. And there's a ton of interesting studies. For example, I think it was out of the UK, where they were trying to get participation in organ donations to go up. And they tried everything, stories, heart-wrenching stories, success stories of people who had been the recipients of do uh, organ donors, or yeah, of organs from donors. And... They finally decided, I don't know if it was on the driver's license or what, but they decided to change it from an opt-in to an opt-out. In other words, if you were going to not be an organ donor, you had to opt out. And the number of organ donors went up, you know, just astronomically. Oh God, that's so weird. And they've done that in, in companies. So companies wanted their employees to participate in their savings, you know, the retirement plan. And they gave all kinds of choices. You can do this. You can put it in that. And no matter how many choices they made showing the returns on different investments, showing how people retired, these people end up being much wealthier, these people, everything that they tried, nothing was as successful as when they required an opt out of the retirement plan. And once people had to opt out of the retirement plan, people are lazy. The default was just, okay, I guess it happened for me. But that mm. decision, that option of opting out gives people the idea that they made that decision. I hate when you like join, they say like, and I don't know if this is the same thing, but when they give you like a free month, 
but then you have to opt out. Oh, you mean like you do Amazon Prime and yeah. you can do it for free. And then you forget to opt out. And then you like a year later, you're like, wait a minute, why have I been charged this much? Because you were just too lazy to opt out. That's a really good point because now, and people used to, I mean, remember when we would balance our checkbooks and every month we would take all of the receipts, which would maybe be 20 in a month. <laughs> and we would take the receipts and mark it against the checkbook and make sure, I mean, dad would balance it to the pen. we would do? <laughs> Well, that's what dad told us to do. Oh, my God. Dad used to get so mad at me because luckily I never had a credit card. I'm sorry. I'm digressing for a moment. But luckily I never had a credit card because I spent more money on my bounced checks than I ever did on anything I purchased. <laughs> Are you kidding? God, I was horrible. But I if- actually still am. So I can't really say I was because I still am bad at that. But now we make so many purchases with credit cards. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's a good way to keep track. Actually, our financial guy told us make every single purchase on a credit card because then you can keep track of what you're spending on coffee, what you're spending on food, what you're spending on this versus if you use cash. Well, yeah, but I mean, you can use your debit card. That keeps track of everything. Well, too. I'm talking, I use a debit card like a credit card. I'm oh, just I talking about versus cash. Oh, okay. Now we have so many charges each month mm-hmm. that it's really hard. And, and sometimes they're coded. So for example, Amazon, it'll just say Amazon. Yeah. And you really don't know. What did you buy from Amazon? Was I buying groceries? Was I buying herbs? Was I buying? I mean, who knows? Yeah, Sonny was just lamenting about that. He's like, why doesn't it say what it is? I'm like, what? It's like, on Saturday at 10 a.m., you were feeling a little frisky, so you bought. I mean, it's not going to say all that. It's just going to say Amazon uh, and the day and the amount. Well, it could say Amazon condoms. (laughs) That would be helpful. (laughs) Be like, why? Yeah. Libertarian paternalism is the idea that it is both possible and legitimate for private and public institutions to affect behavior while also respecting freedom of choice. And I think this is really possible because I think that freedom of choice is a perception. So, for example, let's say we move more and more to algorithms deciding for us in a way that we know and we upload our blood and our, we put in all of the things that we want out of life. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, I want freedom. I want to always be creating things. I want to have a creative outlet. I want to help other people. I want to be wreck whatever it is that makes a you know makes a fl- I just flourishing go to bed. <laughs> okay. Sleep, I want a bath. I want to take a bath. I want to have sleep. Blood. And the algorithm says based on all of these things for you to have a flourishing life, you should vote for this particular politician because the outcome of this politician being the president, Jabba the Hutt, Jabba the Hutt <laughs> being the president. And you're like, I don't want to vote for Jabba the Hutt. I want to vote for Amy Klobuchar, whatever. <laughs> and then the algorithm says, trust me, I know more about what you want having assessed all the different things that you've said, but I've also looked at how you've behaved. What <gasps> You're you've so eaten. right. I'm going to listen to you, algorithm. And then, <laughs> but you could check a box to make the algorithm allow you to feel like you made the control decision or for you to see the transparency of that algorithm because you said you wanted to know how and why decisions were made for you so you could check the box. Box check one, you will see how and why the algorithm made those decisions for you. Box check two, you will be allowed to feel like you made those decisions yourself. Wait, so if I check the box that I want to know how and why, do I not get to feel the feels? Nope, you don't get to feel the feels. Knowing may be a really uncomfortable reality because if you knew 
I mean, it pisses you off to see and know that when you Googled Allbirds shoes and all of a sudden, or you you were saying that you Googled, you know, college scholarships because yeah. Ginger, and yeah. now all you see- Everything that I get is a, in Facebook and even like when I was Googling things on the side, it's all about colleges and college scholarships. I knew that Stephen was looking into <laughs> getting into emergency response stuff because all of a sudden, all this emergency response stuff started popping up because we, you know. Sim- that is hilarious. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? I think I heard a story about someone who went grocery shopping and the coupons, you know how you get those coupons? Yeah, yeah. I think the coupons that they got oh, no. showed that his wife was cheating on her. No. Not on him. <gasps> yeah. Oh, that Based is Based on the coupons that he was getting. He was getting, you know, KY gel yeah, condoms. They hadn't stuff. had sex in 10 years. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I think Dane was looking up something with some kind of music interface. And I'm like, dude, you can't afford a new interface. And he's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm like, busted. Busted. Imagine that you were refused health insurance. But when you asked why, the company just said, it was based on our risk assessment algorithm. That would suck. Yeah, but we've used actuarials for, you know, you pay less for car insurance than Dane would pay for car insurance because he's a 22-year-old boy, man. Right. And, you know, you're a grown-ass woman. So you that's... A, that's al- right. But what if the algorithm was able to take all kinds of things and you apply for a mortgage and you're refused? And now you want to know how and why. Yeah, and you have a right to know how and why, let's just say. Let's just say the mortgage industry says there's some legislation that says you can know how and why these algorithms decide for you. Or what's the other option? Well, if hang I on. Ch- let, me d- let me tell you what they find. Okay. So they find that you are a woman and they find that you have a medical condition which makes you blind in one eye. And they find that you live in a certain region where a lot of people have not repaid their mortgage. Maybe you are of a particular race or a particular age or you have a particular disease. And the algorithms are able to assess all of those things. And statistically significantly, you should be denied a mortgage. We talk about artificial intelligence having biases, you know, and having... And that whole the famous one where it was not seeing black people like oh, yeah. people remember mm-hmm. and that was horrible. I mean facial recognition. But what if it's real? Like what if you as a woman, almost fifty years old, don't tell anyone, blind in one eye, don't tell anyone, you know, <laughs> and whatever. All of those things point to the fact that you should not. You should pay quadruple car insurance. Yeah, and that's just the facts because algorithmically that or you shouldn't get a mortgage because you don't even balance your checkbook and now they know that because you put it on this podcast i knew i should have said that or the police start arresting people on suspicion of planning a crime slow solely based on predictive models informed by data crunching supercomputers oh my god so they knew that steven started looking at emergency response stuff and he, they knew based on his behavior that he's just getting ham radio, you know, starting to really... Gonna be an Elmer. Gonna be an Elmer. And another person looking up the same thing that's 22 years old that has looked up conspiracy theory things on the computer. And based on all of that number crunching, they get a search warrant for this guy's house. I mean, this is these are the kinds of things. This is where we're headed. And so if you really want to know... 
the how and the why, I think what people really want to know is that the how and the why ends with them holding on to the steering wheel. But so th then you would want to check the first box, basically, because the how if you find out the how and why, I guess what I was thinking is if I found out the how and why, then I can argue and defend. Like if an algorithm said that you can't get a loan, then I would be able to at least say, okay, why are you making that decision? How are you, how are you coming about that decision? And then I would be able to argue in my defense. But if I checked the other box that said, I'm going to make all your wildest dreams come true, but you just don't get to know the how and why, who cares, right? Absolutely. I mean, so you argue in your defense, but what good does that do? <laughs> so now you feel good because you've argued in your defense and they've said, so sorry. Or what if you said, I want to have a flourishing life as defined by these things. And I could either make all those decisions to try to get there. But you see all the people who are you know, miserable or not happy or regretful or buying the self-help books or buying the self-improvement books. Clearly, if they knew all the answers, they wouldn't need all those tools. Mm -hmm. Rather than that, you could just say algorithm, who knows, all-knowing algorithm or even more knowing algorithm than any human being ever could even process this information. I have depression. I have this. I have that. Direct me in a way that gives me a flourishing life because every decision that I'm making so far, I have a pretty good life. I'm grateful, but it's not the life exactly that I want. Can you get me there? And the likelihood of this algorithm getting you there because they're able to take into consideration things that your brain could never process, would you do it? I would be afraid of a glitch. And if the glitch happened, and I think glitches do happen, I mean, we all use technology now and glitches happen every day, that something horrible could happen and it would make things worse and my life would be much, much worse. So the decisions you make are glitch-free? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Becky! Have you Damn heard, it! <laughs> have you heard of the famous jam study? No. I love this study. So this was a study, very famous study, choice study in 1995. This professor went to this California gourmet market mm -hmm. and the professor and his assistant put out samples of jam. And every few hours they switched from offering a selection of 24 jams to a group of six jams. And on average, the customers tasted two jams, regardless of how many jams were there. Now, I would have probably tasted, I feel like I would have tasted a lot more because you like jam. Well, I also, I think a lot of people feel like they don't want to be pigs, so they would only choose two. And I'd be like, give me all. I don't know. Oh, no, no, no. You wouldn't because I used to be a sample girl and I had popsicle and no one would take the whole popsicle. So I had finally cut the popsicle in little pieces and so they would take the pieces, but they wouldn't take a whole popsicle. So there you oh, go. Oh, you know why? That could have been reciprocity because if they took a whole popsicle, They'd they would feel, feel obligated. obligated to buy the popsicle. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you took it upon yourself to cut up the popsicles. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's that was a great move. Well, mm -hmm. turns out regardless of the size of the assortment, and for each one, each person received a coupon good for $1 off the jam. So whether it was six or 24 choices, they all got a dollar off. And here's the interesting part. 60% of the customers were drawn to the large assortment. So from their standpoint, they would all say, I've decided that I would rather have the large assortment. Mm -hmm. And 40% stopped by the small assortment. But 30% of the people who had sampled from the small assortment decided to buy, guess the percentage 
that decided to buy a, any jam at all when presented with the 24 choices. I think we would be confident based on what we've been talking about to say that it was the smaller one. Yeah, but what percentage? Just, 30 per- oh, what percentage? I don't know. 3%. Oh. So with 24 choices, 3% bought. With six choices, with six choices, 30% bought. Oh, wow. Yet everyone interviewed said that they, they would prefer the larger choice. more choices. So... If you are a jam manufacturer, you might you might not care what people say they want because you need to get them to decide to buy. You were saying like how many times have you made your decisions and there wasn't any glitches? Well, that segues quite nicely into my list. Your list? Mm-hmm. Five stupid mistakes that changed history. Ooh, I love these things. Talk about glitches. <laughs> the first one is the sinking of the Titanic. My heart will go on. Is that the main song? Uh, here, you're ever, I don't know the words, but you know. Okay, I'll stop. Anyway, the sinking of the Titanic could have been <laughs> prevented if it weren't for a missing key. This is one of probably many, many reasons. I mean, the one in the movie was because they didn't see an iceberg and they didn't have time to, the way they built the ship, they didn't have time to to, uh, turn. But this one is because Fred Fleet, which is funny on a ship, Fred Fleet, was in charge of looking for icebergs, but he didn't have access to his binoculars because they were locked up and they couldn't find the key. Because the company that the company that was in charge of sending these ship people on to uh, to work on the Titanic decided that they weren't going to send one of the people. So they only sent Fred, but they didn't send Charles. And Charles was the one who had the key in his pocket and he didn't go on the ship. A couple of things that I want to comment about the Titanic story is the first thing is the guy's last name is Fleet. Yeah. Do you know the most common name Statistically, for dentists, rotten. (laughs) (laughs) Dennis. No. Yes. Yes. There are so many examples. Dennis the dentist? I'm Dennis the dentist. (laughs) There are so many examples of names that are statistically significantly related to decisions we make. My ophthalmologist's name? Mm -hmm. Beatty. Now, but a lot of people say that the actual decision that resulted in the Titanic Mm -hmm. was a construction decision. And there was a deadly combination of ice and fire. And the collective blame was because of the way it was constructed, this massive below deck blaze weakened the hole so much that the iceberg had no problem cutting a gaping hole through it. Mm. And that would have been a decision on the construction. And this is the other thing I will say and why I really recommend, I highly recommend Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Oh, yeah. It's such a great read. I do want to read that. Most of history is written with today's lens looking back. Mm -hmm. Futurists, silly as they may be, look at today's lens forward. And today's lens looking back is just really hard to, to see all of the inconsequential things that led to our decisions. But Benjamin Franklin's book is like written in the here and the now. That's so cool. And it's super fascinating. What's That's the next so one? so cool. Joseph Stalin's death. Mm. He was always so paranoid. He always thought he was going to uh, get assassinated. Well, when you're such a dick, I can uh, see. Well, what. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would not let his security come into his room without permission. Many times if they did, they were punished by death. So 
Nobody wanted to go in there. Nobody wanted to disturb him, even though they saw that he was sick. And they wouldn't even get the courage to step in and find out why he was acting so helpless inside his room. Four days later, and again, this is one story, one decision, but four days later, a, the doctor came in to check and he was dead, uh, allegedly by a stroke. That's interesting because I know that Stalin was very paranoid about being poisoned mm -hmm. and there's a lot of theories about whether he was poisoned. But I also remember a story about his doctor. So his doctor told, I mean, he was like not in very good shape and you know, <laughs> the doctor told him that he needed to work less and Stalin was pissed and had him charged as working as a spy for the British intelligence. So I'm yeah. sure that that made his minions very paranoid yeah, at making any suggestion. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm not saying anything, you say something. No, I'm not saying anything, you say something. I always remember the story that I heard about Stalin's death is that he was found near death. So they didn't actually go in for a period of time. I read about, I heard yeah, about that. the same thing, yeah. But when they went in, he was near death. Then the question was, did something happen to kind of push him mm -hmm. toward the edge and over the edge? I think Stalin died with a, didn't he die with a peanut butter and banana sandwich in his hand? No, that was Mama Cast. No, that, that was, was Elvis. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, Mama Cast died <laughs> on a, a ham sandwich. <laughs> what's God. the next one? The Berlin Wall coming down. Oh, wasn't that because, I'm sure that the reason was the decision of Reagan to tell Gorbachev to tear down that wall. And then he said, oh, okay, I'll do it, Reagan. Uh, sure. Well, in this story, Gunter Schwabowski, mm -hmm. the big Schwabowski. <laughs> in his bathrobe. <laughs> is the dude abides. <laughs> he was an, an East German politician who held a, a press conference. And because the speech was so long and boring, he just winged it. And he got the media all up in arms because the media asked, so when does this whole loosening of the borders happen? And he didn't know what to say. And he was lost his place in his speech because he was just kind of winging it. And he didn't want to embarrass himself. So he said, uh, right now. Uh, er, uh, uh, like on, on page three, it said in three years. <laughs> immediately right away. Oh, that's interesting. Well, there was another story about this guy, Harold Yeager. He was the meister. Harold Meister Meisterberger? No, Jägermeister. Oh. <laughs> he was dying of cancer and he was pissed off over the insults from hires up. So he disobeyed the orders and started letting East Germans through the gate. And then it became a fait accompli because so many people were flo flowing through the gate that it overtook and just made the whole idea of the Berlin Wall ridiculous. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the same with this. Once the media released that he said it immediately, there was such a frenzy and everybody was going in and out and in and out that the military just decided, okay, sh screw this. And First it was, oy vey, oy vey, oy vey. And then it was, <laughs> oh well. It's funny you said about Jägermeister. I had a friend who told me that apparently it's very embarrassing to order Jägermeister. For whom? And that I, for men, I guess, to go into a, to a bar and order Jägermeister. So they different companies have created same ingredients as Jägermeister, but they call it something different so that you're not embarrassed to order Jägermeister. Jägermaster. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah, why. Dude. I just thought it was so funny because you go in there, go, don't tell anyone, but I want a Jägermeister. I've never heard that that's embarrassing. Do you like Jägermeister? I've only had it once when I was... You were too embarrassed to order tour. any other time. No, I was on tour. I didn't even know anything about it, but I was on tour and Korn, mm -hmm. the band that opened up for us, they offered me Jägermeister and I was like, delicious! Isn't it kind of licorice-y? Yeah, yeah, it's delicious! So I had a few and then I realized why you don't usually drink Jägermeister because it's very painful. Oh, you mean you had more than one? Oh, yeah. yeah. More than two. 
<laughs> More than three. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is about D-Day. Mm. And it totally reminds me of The Man in the High Castle. Have you read that or seen the movie? No, I need to see that. It's a story of what would have happened if the Nazis won. Oh. Well, D-Day was the result of a commander who took the day off to celebrate his wife's birthday. And there were two mistakes that really led to to turning the tides for us. 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 <laughs> meaning The good guys. The good guys. <laughs> Erwin Rommel was commanded by Adolf Hitler to defend the coast of France. But he was convinced that, ah, the enemy troops, they're way off. I got a little time. So he flew home to celebrate his wife's birthday. And the other commanding officers were like, eh, the weather's not good. Nobody's going to want to, you know, be cold. So they all left their training sessions. And on June 6, 1944, same day as his wife's birthday, the invasion took place. And when Rommel got back, all of five beaches were captured by the Allied forces. But even so, if the Germans would have sent their tanks, and it, it would have totally turned the battle in their favor. So even after things were happening, they could have released their tanks and we would have lost. But they, they didn't want to call up Hitler because he was taking a nap and they didn't want to disturb him. Very Stalin-like. Yeah, kind of similar. Do you know why it happened on June 6th and not June 5th? Why? Because it was original, Eisenhower originally selected June 5th, but bad weather, oh. it, was, it was bad weather, so they delayed the operation for 24 hours. So they were right. I mean- the, But they weren't completely right. But the guy would have been there for his mom's birthday. Wife. And this wife's birthday. That is a decision where- you could go deeper and deeper yeah. and people think about dropping the bomb and, mm-hmm. and all of the different things and decisions. I mean, it could all be just based on, you know, someone tripping. And there was some, that kind of like the butterfly effect, maybe kind of. And this is why I question whether we would really want to know how and why decisions are made for us. I would contend that if we really could pull back the truth on the how and the why decisions are made for us, we wouldn't want to know. Well, I think that if you pull back the how and the why you would just have to keep on going back, 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 back. Because to get to the root cause is probably just the Big Bang, you know? Right. And what preceded the Big Bang. Yeah. You could be and right. And what preceded that and what preceded that. Exactly. Speaking of what was responsible for the beginning of the world, I happen to know what your last point of your list was because you slipped and told me earlier this one. <laughs> it's about the Bible. It was called the Wicked Bible, also called the Adulterous Bible or the Sinner's Bible. My favorite Bible. It was published by Royal Printers from London in 1631. The Bible was originally meant to be a reprint of the King James Bible, but <laughs> it became the Wicked Bible because the printer made a little mistake when they were printing out the Ten Commandments. So instead of the printer saying, thou shalt not commit adultery, the printer forgot to print out the word not. Thou shalt commit (laughs) adultery. (laughs) And that's why so many people have taken heed. (laughs) Yes, they were like, Let's say that you made the decision to keep one of those Bibles way back in the day, and you decided (laughs) to pass that on from generation to generation to generation. Finally, there's the internet, and you can look up the value for things, Mm -hmm. and you decide that a copy, original copy of the Wicked Bible, you could sell for many millions of dollars. 
and then you sell that. So let's say, I don't know what it's worth, but let's just say it's, I have no idea what books are worth, but rare books, but it's like a really, really rare book and you could sell it for, let's say, $5 million. And you take that $5 million and you invest in some kind of real estate. And then your children inherit that real estate and they decide to do it. And my point is that so many of the decisions that we make that we take credit for or that we feel empowered by really are based on, like you said, just going back and back. I mean, we've all been involved at work in making a typo or people who've worked in marketing where they didn't proofread enough and something went out (laughs) and they were mortified. Now, the thing that got you fired may be the exact thing that you could sell on eBay 40 years later (laughs) with the typo. So that leads me- So don't make yourself feel bad about your typos, boys and girls. Feel good. Keep your mistakes, save them, put them in a time machine, and at some point- You could be a millionaire. Ready for the sort of fact? Ready. This is not out of PU. Where is it? This is out of TU, Trusted University. Is that where you went? TU, Trusted University. No, I went to wash you (laughs) because we were very clean. Yes. (laughs) This study interviewed over 17 million people all over the world. It took many, many years. And what it found was that across the board, things that had positive outcomes were attributed to decisions that people made for themselves and things that had negative outcomes were attributed to decisions that were made on their behalf, also known as the self-serving bias. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing Curiosity Bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.